So book of Daniel chapter 5. Um, and I entitled this message, the, the writing on the wall. And you'll see why as we go through the book, through, through this chapter. So up until this point, you know, from... Chapters four, which we read last week, and, and you guys remember, we, in chapter four we read we read the account of Nebuchadnezzar being humbled by God. And you know, remember how, how this plague came upon him for seven years, and he kind of just went crazy. You know, started uh, you know his hair, his nails got all long, his hair got got all long, his his understanding you know uh, 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 went went away from him, and it was for seven years, and the Lord was doing this in his life to humble him, and and, and for the purpose that, that he would recognize that it's God who rules and reigns above the whole earth, and it's God who sets up kings. And kingdoms and, and tears them down. And so from chapter 4 to chapter 5, we're, we're, which we're about to read, about 23 years has, has passed from just this, this flip of a, of a page. And so we're missing a lot of history in between. And so we see that Daniel, he's still there in the, in the, in the Empire of Babylon at the time, but he just doesn't write anything that, that goes on in between. And so there's about, again, about 23 years has passed just from, the, from chapter 4 to chapter 5. And we see that King Nebuchadnezzar has long passed away by this point. As we get into chapter, chapter 5, we're going to see that he's not on the scene anymore. He's already passed away. He had a, a, a long life. He reigned a total of 43 years in Babylon. And seven of those years he spent as a crazy guy in the fields that we read last, last week. And again, so uh, Daniel doesn't record anything that happened from Nebuchadnezzar to this king that we're about to read uh, here in, in, in chapter 5, King Belshazzar. And so just with, with, with that in mind, you know, just so you won't get uh, confused as we go into... into uh, to chapter 5, just keep that in mind that there's this period of time in between. And with that, I'm gonna get it. Go ahead and get into the chapter. It says, starting in verse 1, it says, Belshazzar the king. So now he's the new king of Babylon. Belshazzar the king made a great feast for a thousand of his lords and drank wine in the presence of the thousand. While he tasted the wine, Belshazzar gave the command to bring the golden silver, ve- the silver vessels which his father Nebuchadnezzar had taken from the temple which had been in Jerusalem. That the king and his lords, his wives and his concubines might drink for them. And verse 3 says, Then they brought the gold vessels that had been taken from the temple of the house of God, which had been in Jerusalem. And the king and his lords, his wives and his concubines drank from them. In verse 4, they drank wine and praised the gods of gold, and the gods of silver, the gods, the gods of bronze, iron, wood and stone. We'll stop right there. So in order to get a good overview of what's happened up until this point. You know, with, with Daniel, with the whole nation of, 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 of Judah at this point, that's in captivity, with Babylon. Um, I actually want to read from another book, another chapter, uh, that's Second uh, Kings chapter 25. You don't have to turn that thing, it's going to be on the screen, but I'm just going to go ahead and read this chapter. I'm not going to expound too much on it or make any little comments, but I just want to read through the whole chapter. Because it gives us a great overview of, 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 the, of what's happened in between, you know, in, in between this time where, where the nation of Judah is, is in captivity all the way from when, when, when Nebuchadnezzar came into the city and besieged the city up until what we're reading about right now. So 2 Kings 25, uh, the book of 2 Kings actually gives us the history of the kings of, of the southern kingdom of Judah. And it starts off by saying this, it says, Now it came to pass in the ninth year of his reign, in the tenth month, on the tenth day of, of the month, that Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, and all his army came against Jerusalem and encamped against it. And they built a siege wall against it all around. So we read that in chapter 1. So the city was besieged until the eleventh year of King Zedekiah. By the ninth day, on the fourth month, the famine had, be, had become so severe in the city that there was no food for the people in the land. Then the city wall was broken through, and all the men of war fled at night by way of the gate between the two walls, which was by the king's garden, even though the Chaldeans were still encamped all around against the city. And the king went by way of the plain, 
But the army of the Chaldeans, or the army of Babylon, pursued the king, and they overtook him in the plains of Jericho. All his army was scattered from him, so they took the king and brought him up to the, to the king of Babylon at Riblah, and they pronounced judgment on him. Then they killed the sons of Zedekiah before his eyes, put out the eyes of Zedekiah, bound him with bronze fetters, and, and took him to Babylon. So again, we're getting an overview of, of, of we're getting more detail of what happened when, when King Nebuchadnezzar went into Judah and he overtook the city. You know, as as we're going through the through the the book of, of Daniel, Daniel doesn't mention all these little details, right? He mentions that that, that that they were in the city and that and that Nebuchadnezzar came in and he took him as captives, but he doesn't mention everything that he, that he did in between. Right, and we're as we're reading through through chapters one through four, we're mentioning how, how evil Nebuchadnezzar was, how he was just this madman, he was power hungry. But Second Kings actually gives us a little more detail into into what he actually did. Like when he went in there into the city, he took Zedekiah. We're told that uh, that that he killed Zedekiah's kids right in front of him, you know, and he made him watch. And and after after he wa- after he saw his kids killed right in front of him, he they they poked his eyes out, you know, so that the last thing that he ever saw with his eyes. Was his kids being killed right in front of him? And so again, you see kind of the, the, the heart of Nebuchadnezzar. We see the heart of this pagan king. We see the we see the, the heart of this of this king, right? And so verse eight says, and in the fifth month, on the seventh day of the month, which was nine, the nineteenth year of King Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, Nebuzaradan, the captain of the guard, a servant of the king of Babylon, came to Jerusalem. He burned the house of the Lord and the king's house, all the houses of Jerusalem. That is, all the houses of the great. He burned with fire. And all the army of the, of the Chaldeans who were with the captain of the guard broke down the walls of Jerusalem all around. So again, we're getting more detail into, into what, what uh, Babylon did, what, what the king did as they went to Jerusalem. They went to everyone's houses. They burned down the, ho- the houses. They broke down the walls. They went specifically, specifically into the houses of those men who were important there in, in, uh, in Jerusalem and Judah. Noblemen, you know, guys who were of the royal blood, of the royal lineage, guys who were in power. And, and, they, and they targeted them directly. They burned their house down. And so it goes on to say in verse 11, then uh, Nebuzaradan, the captain of the guard, carried away captive the rest of the people who remained in the city and the defectors who had de- deserted to the king of Babylon with the rest of the multitude. But the captain of the guard left some of the poor of the land as vine dressers and farmers. Amongst those people who, who were left behind uh, after the third siege were the prophet Jeremiah. So the prophet Jeremiah, you know, even though he was in, 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 in Judah at the time, when King Nebuchadnezzar and Babylon came in to, to overtake the, the city, they actually left them behind. And so, and so the prophet Jeremiah, who writes a huge, you know, a huge book, he has all his writings, he was left behind. And so while he was there in this broken down city, in this run down city, Jerusalem, you know, he was able to, to, to still speak, you know, to, to still hear from the Lord, uh, pin down his writings. And actually his writings gave hope to, to, the, to, to Jerusalem and to Judah, to Daniel, while they were in captivity. Because... because, um, because Jeremiah was here and Judah, he was still hearing from the Lord. He was still writing down. He was still sending, you know, word down to the captives. And so it says there in, th- in verse 13 of 2 Kings says, The bronze pillars that were in the house of the Lord and the carts and the bronze sea that were in the house of the Lord, the Chaldeans broke into pieces and they carried their bronze to Babylon. They also took away the pots, the shovels, the trimmers, the spoons and all the bronze utensils which the priests ministered. The fire pans, the basins, the things of solid gold and solid, solid silver, the captain of the guard took away. The two pillars, one sea, and the carts which Solomon had, had made for the house of the Lord. The bronze of all these articles was beyond measure. The height of one pillar was 18 cubits, and the capital on it was, was a bronze. 
The height of the capital was three cubits and the network of pomegranates all around the capital were bronze. The second pillar was the same with the network. And so again, we're, we're giving an overview of, of, of what these guys did when they, when they went in there and they overtook the city. They took all the holy articles that the, that the Jews would use in the worship you know, of the holy God, of the one true God. You know, they would use all these, they had all, all these uh, uh, um, utensils that they would use in, 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 in their sacrifices to God and their worship to God and their rituals. They, these were holy, consecrated, you know, blessed things. And yet when when... Uh, King Nebuchadnezzar went into Judah. You know, he took all these things for themselves. And so it goes on to say there in verse 18, And the captain of the guard took Sarai, the chief priest, Zephaniah, the second priest, and the three doorkeepers. He also took out of the city an officer who had charge of the men of war. Five men of the king's close associates were found in the city of the chief recruiting officer of the army who mustered the people of the land. And 60 men of the people on the land who were found in the city. And it goes on to say, So Net. Nebuzaradan, captain of the guard, took these and brought them to the king of Babylon at Riblah. Then the king of Babylon struck them and put them to death at Riblah in the land of Hamath. Thus Judah was carried away captive from its own land. In verse 22, then he made Gedaliah, the son of Ahikam, the son of Shaphan, governor over the people who remained in the land of Judah. So all the poor people whom Nebuchadnezzar had, uh, of Babylon had left. Now when all the captains of the armies, they and their men, heard that the, the, the king of Babylon had made Gedaliah governor. They came to Gedaliah, Mizpah, Ishmael, the son of Nethaniah, Jotham, Jotham, the son of Keriah, Sarai, the son of uh, Timoth, and some weird names, the Netophite, the Jazaniah, the son of the Mechakite, they and their men. And Gedaliah took an oath before them, and he, and he said to them, Do not be afraid of the servants of the Chaldeans. Dwell in the land and serve the king of Babylon, and it shall be well with you. But it happened in the seventh month of the Ishmael, the son of Nethaniah, the son of Elishama, the royal family, came with ten men and struck and killed Gedaliah, the Jews, as well as the Chaldeans who were with them, at Mizpah, and all the people, small and great, and the captains of the armies arose and went to Egypt, for they were afraid of the Chaldeans. So pretty much we're getting, again, this overview of what's happening in Judah as the land is now desolate. The only ones who, who got left behind were all the poor people and all the vine dressers, all the farmers, all the farmers and all the poor people. And, of course, uh, uh, Jeremiah the prophet. Everyone else, as, as, as King uh, uh, Nebuchadnezzar went to Judah. He went in there three times. He went in three times. And each time he went in there, he took poor people with him, captive. And so the only ones that were left behind were just the poor people, the farmers, and Jeremiah the prophet. You know, and, and, and meanwhile, while the nation of Israel is there in captivity in Babylon, there's just you know, chaos going on in Jerusalem. Why? Because there's no king. There's no one to rule. There's no one to set order. It's a pretty much a free-for-all. And just finishing this chapter... It says, Now it came to pass in the 37th year, the captive of Jehoiakim, king of Judah, in the 12th month of the 27th day of the month that, and now we're giving her a name, that evil Merodach, king of Babylon, in the year that he began to reign, released, released Jehoiakim, king of Judah, from prison. He spoke kindly to him and gave him a more prominent seat than those of the kings who were with them in Babylon. So Jehoiakim changed from his prison garments and he ate bread regularly before the king all the days of his life. And as for his provisions, there was a regular ration given to him by the king, a portion each day for all the days of, of the life. So... Sorry, a lot to go through. Again, I don't want to expound too much on it, but but I, I I read it to make a point, you know. And as we read through this, we get all these details about what's going on in Judah while 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 the land is desolate, you know. As we read that, we saw that there was a transfer of power, and we saw that that it went from King Nebuchadnezzar to Evil Merodach, which was his son. Now that's interesting because Chapter Five actually starts off by saying that Belshazzar is the king. It's two completely different different individuals. Now. Again, 2 Kings 25-27 tells us that, that it was a king by the name of Evil Merodach who was king. 
You know, but verse 1 of, of Daniel 5 tells us that it was Belshazzar who was king of Babylon after Nebuchadnezzar. And he even calls him his father. And so for a long time, for a long time, you know, a critic of the Bible would, would look at this passage and, you know, and they would criticize the Bible. They would say, you know, the, the Bible isn't true. Or, yeah, it, it's, 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 it's false. It's, 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 it has errors. You know, it's, it's errant. You know, because this isn't true, right? According to secular history, according to world history, they, they would see the, 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 the lineage from, from King Nebuchadnezzar down to, to all his descendants. And, and nowhere in the, in the line of descendants was Belshazzar mentioned. You know, but instead, evil Merodach was mentioned. And so they, they would use this and, and, and criticize the Bible you know, and, and try to, you know, uh, 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 again, just uh, put away with the Bible and say, look, it's not true. You can't be trusted. It falls. It has errors. You know, it, you, you, can't, you, know, you, you can't take it for, for what it says. You know, until, that was until some, some archaeologists uh, uncovered more evidence, right? They always do. And so according to archaeologists, to archaeological discoveries, uh, this is the history of the kings after the death of Nebuchadnezzar. So there's actually a gap between all these kings, right? We read this in chapter, in, um, in Second Kings, right? We read from, from Nebuchadnezzar to evil Marduk, and all of a sudden we're, we're, we're left with Belshazzar in, king, in chapter 5. So there's actually a whole gap of, of kings that are not mentioned. Right, but again, these guys, these critics, they didn't didn't do any further research. It wasn't until these archaeologists they, they they discover more evidence that then they got the full story. And so, this is the history, you know, of the kings of, of Babylon, starting from King Nebuchadnezzar. So, King Nebuchadnezzar died, and his son Evil Merodach took the throne, as mentioned in Second Kings twenty five. You know, but he ruled for only two years when he was assassinated by his brother in law, a guy named uh, Neriglasser. Then Neriglasser actually ruled for four years. Until he died a natural death. And Jeremiah 39.3 actually mentions him by name. And so we see that, that, that his name is mentioned. Uh, Neriglasher, he's, he's, he was an official under Nebuchadnezzar. And he eventually rose to power. We see that Neriglasher reigned for four years. And he, then he died a natural death. And his son, man, I can't say his name. Uh, Lebros. <laughs> I'm not even going to try to say his name. We'll call him L. His son L, only a child at the time. You know, he, he took the throne once his dad died. But he ruled only for nine months. And then he was, uh, he was beaten to death by a gang of men who conspired to take the throne. So they beat this, this, this child king of, of Babylon so they could take the, the throne. And then these guys who beat up this child king of Babylon, they appointed one of their own to be king, a man by, by the name of Nabonidus. You know, and so and Nabonidus was appointed to be king in 555 BC and he reigned from 555 BC to 539 BC. We see that he was probably, uh, out of all these guys that, that, that ruled, he was probably the most capable ruler since the reign of Nebuchadnezzar. This guy was a man of war. He was eloquent. He was smart. He was tough. He was a leader. You know, so, so according to the history, he was probably the most uh, qualified man to, 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 you know, to, to rule over Babylon other than, than Nebuchadnezzar. Um, he was said to be very paranoid and very, very religious when it came to their pagan religion. And so he reigned until, until this chapter, chapter 5. And then we see that because he was appointed to the throne and, and, and not of the royal family, you know, he couldn't technically be king because he had no royal blood in him. Uh, he actually married one of Nebuchadnezzar's daughters and they had a son named Belshazzar, which is the guy that we're about to read in chapter 5. And so again, for a long time, there was no evidence of this until, uh, until King Belshazzar, there was no evidence of him. You know, there was a lot of criticism, right, on the Bible. They say it's not true, you can't be trusted, it's false, it's got it all mixed up, you can't trust it. But yet... Then uh, it wasn't until um, so, until some time back that they discovered there there and what's what's modern day uh, Babylon, which is Iraq. They, they discovered this 
this cylinder called the, the cylinder of Nebuchadnezzar. As they were excavating there, in the, there at, the, at the temple, the sun god there in, in Iraq, which was, which was a modern day Babylon. They discovered four cylinders there in that temple. And among those, this, those four cylinders, one of them was, was, was called the cylinder of Nebuchadnezzar. And what it is, it's just a clay jar with inscriptions on it. You know, and as, as, they, they, as, they, as they began to, 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 to translate the, the inscriptions, you, you got the whole history of the nation of Babylon and their kings all the way from Nebuchadnezzar up until Belshazzar. Amazing. Amazing. Um, you could actually even, if you, if you want to take a, take a trip to, to Europe, you could, you could see this, these cylinders. They're at the British Museum. And so again, man, there's a saying. Uh, one of our, our Bible college professors, Pastor Jesse, would say every time, every time a shovel goes down in the Middle East, another, bar- another skeptic is buried. You know, and it's so true because we could trust the Bible, right? It's not just some, you know, fairy tales, not just some, you know, uh, compiled, you know, book of different stories of, uh, of Israel. No, it's, it's true. It's, it's, it's actual history. You know, and, and we, could take, we could take it for what it is. And so continuing on. So, so Belshazzar wasn't uh, the king's son? He wasn't Nebuchadnezzar's son. Yeah. He was more like his great-grandson. So he was, he was of the royal lineage because uh, Nebuchadnezzar's his dad married one of, one of Nebuchadnezzar's daughters. And then they had him. Okay. And so because Nebuchadnezzar was so paranoid, he spent 13 of his 16 years reigning as, as king. Not in Babylon, you know, but, but in Arabia. He was so paranoid. He knew the history of all these kings. He knew that someone was eventually going to be out to get him, you know. And at the same time, you know, the the, the empire of, of, of the of the of the Medo Persians was surrounding them. You know, they're they're constantly trying to take over the nation of Babylon. And so, because this guy was so paranoid, again, he spent 13 of his years uh, reigning actually from Arabia. And as he would go out, he set Belshazzar as as second command, you know, as a the ruler there in Babylon. And so, technically, as we read chapter five, you know, Belshazzar isn't the main king. He's the second in command right now in Babylon. You know, his dad, uh, Nebuchadnezzar, is, is the true king, but he's out doing battle. See, this guy was a man of war. He's out there doing battle. He's in Arabia. He's doing business deals. And so he leaves his son, Belshazzar, in charge as second in command. And so at this point in time, the armies of the Medo-Persian Empire were surrounding the city of Babylon. Right? They were trying to break down the walls. They were trying to break through. They were trying to conquer it. And we see this is actually prophetic because if you remember in chapter 2 of the book of Daniel, uh, we, we read how, how Nebuchadnezzar had this dream. And his dream was, was this huge statue. And each statue and each part of the statue was made out of different, uh, different type of metal. And uh, we see that God revealed to Daniel that, that each body part and each metal actually represented a different world governing empire that would, that would succeed Babylon. And history tells us that, that it was Babylon, then it was the Medo-Persians, then it was followed by, by, by the Grecians with Alexander the Great, followed by the, the Roman Empire. And so eventually it just collapsed on itself. It got too big, you know, and it just collapsed on itself. And then we're waiting now for the, for the following empire, which is going to be the empire of the Antichrist. And then finally that rock that was hewn, you know, with, with, without hands that, that crushed the whole statue, you know, obliterating to dust in the air, which is going to be the, the kingdom of the, of the Christ, of our Christ. All right. And so we see that, that this is actually historic, you know, this is actually prophetic what's going on right now. You know, he, he has the Medo-Persians surrounding Babylon, surrounding the city of Babylon, trying to break through. You know, they're surrounding Babylon, a city that was well guarded. History tells us and, and excavation tells us that the city had outer walls that were 70 miles long. You know, they were 22 feet thick. I mean, that's thick. You know, you could run a, a two chariots, like two lanes, Right. And so it was 17 miles long, the outside of the wall. It was two, 22 feet thick. It was 90 feet high, uh, along with guard towers all around the, the walls. These city gates were made of bronze, and they had a system of, of moats around the whole city. So this thing was, was like 
was was tough. You know, it was it was well guarded. You know, there was like no way that anybody could just could just walk in there and overtake the city. It was well guarded. They had enough food stored in Babylon to last. Uh, some even say up to up to twenty years. You know, they had enough food stored there in Babylon, along with running water. You know, they could withstand an attack because the surrounding army would eventually run out of supplies. They'd get tired. They'd run out of food. You know, and they would have to retreat. When when they when they built the, the city of Babylon when they built the, when they built the nation of, of, of Babylon you know and they put these walls around it they actually built it with the river Euphrates running right through it so they had running flowing water uh, running through the whole city you know and if you have water you have supplies I mean you have if you have water you survive you know but, but you have water you have supplies I mean, you'll survive for a very long time and so again this city was was it was like the safest city the the, the most guarded city so picture this here's Belshazzar. You know, the second in command in Babylon, his dad is out fighting, he's out doing war, you know, and, 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 and he's, he has all these surrounding armies, you know, surrounding the city, you know, and now his dad is probably overtaken by this time, you know, many people believe. And now you think that, that Belshazzar, who's, who's in charge right now, you think that, 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 that Belshazzar would be, you know, lining up an army, coming up with a plan, you know, getting a, 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 the strategy going on, you know, maybe preparing his people, saving his supplies, you know, I mean, getting armed for battle, right, getting ready for battle, that's what a king does. You would think, but no. Instead, we're told that that he that he throws a party for thousands of his employees of his lords, and they get all drunk. Now he was an arrogant, you know, prideful, inexperienced. You know, he was a he was a spoiled brat, right? Here's his dad out doing battle. He's a real king. He lets, he leaves him in charge, and instead of him, you know, uh, getting the the guys ready, getting the army ready, he's throwing a big party, getting all drunk. You know, he, he's spending all the food. He's spending all their supplies. It's like he was arrogant. He was prideful. And, and to him, he was trying to show the, 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 the Middle Persians on the outside. Hey, look, man, we're not, we're, not, we're not tripping, man. We're not worried. Look, we're, we're not trying to save our supplies. We're going to have a party instead. We're not, we don't care about you guys. We're not, we're not worried about you guys. Right? That's how puffed up this guy was. He was showing off. You know, he wasn't caring about running out of supplies, but instead he was partying it up. And we're, it goes on to say, it says... That then Belshazzar gave the command to bring the gold and the silver vessels which his father Nebuchadnezzar had taken from Jerusalem. Now, what are these? Now, it was, it was common in the ancient world to refer, you know, uh, to an ancestor as a father. So, so when we read this and we see that that, that that Nebuchadnezzar is referred to as his father, you know, don't don't get don't get sidetracked by that. Don't get uh, confused by that. You know, again, it was common to just call them uh, their father. It's like you know, as we read through the whole Bible, we see that that, that Jesus even addresses the Jews. In the New Testament, you know, and the, and the Jews tell me, hey, our father is Abraham. We're, 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 we're of our father Abraham. Right? Obviously, they weren't, you know, that wasn't his dad, but they were direct descendants. And so it was common, you know, in the ancient world to, to call your ancestors, to call your descendants, uh, your, your father. So he says, you know, that his father, uh, Nebuchadnezzar, had, had gone to Judah and they take those, they, he took these sacred articles from Judah. All right. And so we get to Belshazzar's biggest sin. You know, his biggest sin wasn't throwing a party. His biggest sin wasn't, you know, getting drunk. His biggest sin wasn't, you know, not going out to battle. But his biggest sin and, his, and what led to his downfall was, was this right here. Him, him taking the, the, these, these golden vessels that had been taken from the temple of the house of God, which was in Jerusalem, and using them to party it up. That was his biggest sin. And, and that, was, that was, what led to, was what led to his downfall. I remember there in Daniel 1-2. It starts, it starts off by saying, And the Lord gave Jehoiakim, king of Judah, into his hand, and with some of the articles of the house of God, which he carried into the land of Shinar to the house of his God, and he brought the articles into the treasure's house of his God. Now, 
these gold and silver, silver articles were the utensils that the priests of God would use in Jerusalem as they would go into the temple and offer sacrifices to the one true God. You know, they would have different different sacrifices that they would offer a drink offering. You know, they would uh, they were uh, they would they would offer different different sacrifices, different rituals, and and as they did that, you know, they had these specific utensils, specific plates, sp- specific things that they would use only for the temple of God. These were holy things. I mean, you couldn't touch me. You couldn't come near them. You know, except for the priests would, would use them one time a year, and other than that, you couldn't come near them. You know, they were they were holy things. They were they were consecrated things. Right? And so when, when Nebuchadnezzar came into Judah and he took all these guys captive, he took these things captive with him and he stored them in his, in his storage. And, and, and these things were sacred and, and they, they haven't been brought out ever since. Right? And now here's Belshazzar just drunk, you know, prideful. I mean, more than drunk with wine, he's, he's drunk in pride. Right? And so he orders for, for the men to go and bring these holy utensils that belong to the Jews and he was going to use them to, to drink wine out of them. Right? He's using... These utensils, you know, that were used for holy worship of the one true God, he's going to use them to drink cheap wine. That's heavy. And it says that as they drank wine out of these utensils, is that they praised the gods of the gold, of silver, of bronze, of iron, of wood, and of stone. Now, he was trusting in his false gods to save and protect them, right? You might be thinking, oh, well, that's kind of weird to worship the gods of gold and silver, bronze, iron, wood, and stone. What does that mean? Well, this whole city, I mean, keep in mind, again, the, the, the walls were made of stone. You know, he had bronze, he had bronze gates. You know, he had gold utensils. He had a lot of money. And so what he's doing is, is really he, he's worshiping, you know, the, the things that, he, that his possessions. He's worshiping the things that he takes pride in. The great city, you know, the fortress, the, 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 the bronze gates, right? He's worshiping all, all the things that he's putting his trust in, right? His confidence was in the stone walls, the bronze gates, the gold of the city, etc., and as he's drinking from these sacred things, you know, he's worshiping all things of the world. And it goes on to say there in verse 5, In the same hour, the fingers of a man's hand appeared and rolled opposite the lampstand on the plaster of the wall of the king's palace. And the king saw the part of the hand that wrote. Then the king's countenance changed and its thoughts troubled him, so that the joints of his hips were loosened and his knees knocked against each other. Verse 7, the king cried aloud to bring in the astrologers, the Chaldeans, and the soothsayers. The king spoke, saying to the wise men of Babylon, Whoever reads the writing and tells me its interpretation shall be clothed with purple and have a chain of gold around his neck and shall be the third ruler in the kingdom. Verse 8, now all the king's wise men came, but they could not read the writing or make known to the king its interpretation. Then King Belshazzar was greatly troubled. His countenance was changed and his lords were astonished. Man, so here he is again. He's partying it up with the with the these holy utensils that were used in the worship of the one true God, the Creator of the whole universe. Right? That was his his, his biggest mistake. That's what, what led to his downfall. And and as he's partying up, drinking out of these things, he says at that very same hour, you know, in the original language, it, it could be translated that very moment. It's like as soon as he took the sip, boom, that's it. You're done, buddy. As soon as he took that sip, all of a sudden it says that, that he saw this this huge hand. We don't know if it was. A physical hand, we don't know if it was a vision, we don't know exactly what this would have looked like. But he describes it as a hand that began to just write on the wall with its fingers. And when he saw that, he became terrified. And, and so terrified that it says that his countenance changed. Uh, he began shaking, his knees began to buckle. I mean, this dude was, he was, he was done, you know, he was terrified. He was scared straight, right? And so we're told that, uh, that Belshazzar cried out for the wise men of Babylon to come and interpret the writing. He knew he had messed up. He knew that he shouldn't have done that. 
Right, his face turned pale, his body became weak, he began trembling at the knees, they're buckling up against each other. He, he knew that, that he had just messed up. And so he calls for the wise men of Babylon to come and interpret the writing on the wall. He, he, he couldn't understand what it said. Now, again, we, uh, we have these pagan kings, you know, turning to their worldly wisdom to find answers to their questions and coming up short. Right, it happened with Nebuchadnezzar, it's been happening as, as we've been reading Nebuchadnezzar twice. Right, that every time they have a question, every time something comes up, every time God is trying to speak to them, what do they do? They turn to the, to the worldly council. What did Nebuchadnezzar do when, when, when he had that dream? He called all the wise men, all the Chaldeans, all the magicians of Babylon, all the astrologers, and they came up short. Right? And we, we find in our lives as well that whenever we have these doubts, whenever we have, we have these thoughts that trouble us, you can't sleep at night. You know you have to do something with, it, with your life. You know God's trying to minister to you, trying to speak to you. It's always a mistake when we go to the world for, for counsel. When we go to the world for wisdom, right? Instead, we should be going to God's word. And so we see that in Nebuchadnezzar twice, man, uh, he got these visions from the Lord. And what did he do? He called the magicians. He called the astrologers. He called all these guys. They couldn't answer him. And then he turned to, then he turned to Daniel. Now here's Belshazzar doing the same thing, right? He knows he messed up. He, he, he no doubt knows that, that, that this is happening because he drank out of, those, out of those holy cups. He sees his writing on the wall. He knows it's against him. And he calls the worldly wisdom. And they couldn't interpret his dream. Right? Man, when are they going to learn? I like what it says in Proverbs 9.10. It says, The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. And of the knowledge of the Holy One is understanding. Right? The world will tell you otherwise. The world will tell you, you know, wisdom is in, you know, trusting in this, trusting in that, going on with the, with the agenda, with the philosophies of the world, with the philosophies of, the, of, of, of societies. That's worldly wisdom. Right? But we see that the Bible tells us otherwise. The Bible tells us that the beginning of wisdom, not just wisdom, but the beginning of wisdom, is, a fear, is the fear of the Lord. You know, now, when it says fear, it doesn't mean you know, you're terrified of God. I don't want to even pray or I don't even want to talk to God or go to church because He's going to strike me down. No, but it means just this holy reverence in your heart of knowing who God is in your life, right? If you have that in mind, if you have that in your heart, if you allow that to rule your life, it says that is the beginning of wisdom. It says, and the knowledge of the holy of the Holy One is understanding. Not what the world is teaching, not what the world is trying to throw in your ear, not what the world is trying to throw in your kids' ears. No, that's not wisdom, that's foolishness. I mean, why am we seen it time and time again? I mean, how many times do we watch the news, they're off, right? And then uh, a few months later, they're changing it up, they're changing the story. I mean, man, they can't get their facts straight, right? But th- the word of God, man, it's never changed. It's never changing. The Bible says that, that, that God holds his word above his own name, right? And so, and, and so God honors his word above his own name. God's word never changes, it's never going to change. The Bible says of God that He is the same today, yesterday, for, forever, tomorrow, and forever. And so is His Word. And Jesus said in the New Testament, you know, as, he's, as He's talking to, to His disciples and addressing the crowd, He says, Heaven and earth will pass away, but My Word will never pass away. And so we could trust in His Word. We could trust in the wisdom that, that comes from God's Word, from reading His Word. We could allow it to govern our lives you know, more than the wisdom of this world. And so here's Belshazzar, again, Fearful, he knows that this writing is, has something to do with him, what he just did. He calls in all the wise guys from, from Babylon. You know, they're probably terrified as well. They've never seen this before. You know, all of a sudden they go in and, and, they, and they see a hand writing on the wall. And so he says, whoever can interpret, th- interpret this will be the third in command. Now, interesting, you know, because if he was king, then why did he offer second in command? You know, again, this just confirms the historical account and tells us that, that Nebuchadnezzar was the actual king, you know, and, and Belshazzar was the second in command. So he offered what he could, third in command. Hey, man, I'll make you the next powerful man as, next to me, the next most powerful man next to me, which is third in command, right? He was, he was the second in command. And so Belshazzar is offering what he can, third place. And so it says in verse 10, 
Then the queen, because of the words of the king and his lords, came to the banquet hall. The queen spoke, saying, O king, live forever. Now, depending on what version you have, it might say the, the queen mother. You know, so it says that the queen came in and, and she saw what was going on. And she says, O king, live forever. Do not let your thoughts trouble you, nor let your countenance change. Verse 11 says, There is a man in your kingdom in whom is the spirit of the holy God. And in the days of your father, light and understanding and wisdom, like the wisdom of the gods, were found in him. And King Nebuchadnezzar, your father, your, your father the king, made him chief of the magicians, astrologers, Chaldeans, and soothsayers. Inasmuch as an excellent spirit, knowledge, understanding, interpreting dreams, solving riddles, we're talking about Daniel, and explaining enigmas were found in this Daniel, whom the, whom the king named Belshazzar. Now let Daniel be called, and he will give you the interpretation. Amazing. So yeah, we're told now that, that, the, that the queen steps up. You know, she sees, what, she sees what's going on. She probably heard the command from Belshazzar to get all the wise guys of Babylon to come in and interpret the dream. You know, she probably sees him terrified, you know, pale skinned, you know, shaking. He can't, probably can't even speak. And so she sees something's wrong. She walks in and says, look, uh, there was this guy, you know, when, when, Nebuch when your father Nebuchadnezzar was king, there was this guy that he would go to. He would interpret his dreams. He was wise. He was savvy. You know, he, 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 he knew all the, all the right answers. And more than that, the spirit of the one true God was in him. Man, that says a lot about Daniel, right? He said, there's a man named Daniel whom is the spirit of the holy God. Now, keep in mind that, that Daniel was an old man by this point. You know, he's probably somewhere around 88 years old. He's an old man, right? And after all this time, I mean, he was taken into Babylon as a teen. He could have been anywhere from, from 15 to, to 19 years old. You know, he was taken into Babylon as a teen, Right? So all that time, he didn't, he didn't have a, 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 a temple that, for themselves where they could go worship the one true God, worship the, true, the God of the Jews. They couldn't offer sacrifices. They couldn't do all these things that they were used to doing. But yet this whole time, we see that, that, that Daniel has, has kept his heart faithful to his God. He's 80-something years old now. They call him in, and his reputation is still the same. I love that. I love that. You know, I was so encouraged by that because I don't know if that's ever happened to you where, where you don't see somebody for a long time. And then, uh, you know, you don't hear about them, you don't, you don't know what's up with them. And then all of a sudden you, you, you run into them and they're still walking with the Lord. They're still persevering. They're still, you know, going strong. And, and you get encouraged by that, right? And on the other hand, when, when you see someone that kind of fell off, you kind of, you get discouraged. You get bummed out. You're like, man, you know, whatever happened to that brother? Or whatever happened to her? You know, she was running so strong, right? But when, when a long time is passing and you see that somebody has persevered through trials, through hardships, through everything that came at them. You heard about, you know, what, what was happening to them. You know, you heard about their marriage, about their kids, about their job, about this, that, whatever. Right. And then you run into them and man, they're still trusting the Lord. They're still walking with God. They haven't wavered to the left or to the right. They're still persevering in, in the things of the Lord. Dude, that's encouraging. That encourages me. And so I was encouraged by, by Daniel as I read this because here he is an old man now. Right? He went through all this under the, the rulership of Nebuchadnezzar. Uh, he went under the rulership of all these kings, saw everything go down, the assassinations, you know, the beatings of, the, of, this, of, this, of this child king. You know, he saw the corruption going on, and, and he kept his testimony. That's amazing. Because for us, it's easy to get discouraged in this world that we're living in. Right? We have bad leadership. We have all kinds of stuff that's going on in our governments, in our schools, in our societies, you know, on TV, at work. It's easy to get discouraged. It's easy to say, man, where's God in all this? It's easy to say, you know what? It's, it's easier to just, uh, to just run with the world. Forsake the things of God. That's easy. That's the easy thing to do. I'll be honest, right? It's always easier to swim with the current than against the current. But how encouraging is it, you know, when, when somebody just perseveres through it all? And here's Daniel, 80-something years old. His reputation is still the same. 
His reputation is a man named Daniel in whom is the spirit of the Holy God. Not, not in whom was the spirit of the Holy God. Not in whom once in a while was the spirit of the Holy God. No. But a man in whom is the spirit is, you know, current, is the spirit of the Holy God. You know, he has not wavered in his faith, you know, and he has an awesome testimony. And everybody knew about it. And so it goes on to say there in verse 13. It says, Then Daniel was brought in before the king, and the king spoke and said to Daniel, are you that Daniel who is one of the captains for captives from Judah, whom my father the king brought from Judah? I have heard of you, that the spirit of God is in you, and that light and understanding and excellent wisdom are found in you. Now, the wise men, the astrologers, have been brought in before me, that they should read this writing and make known to me its interpretation, but they cannot give me the interpretation of the thing. And I have heard of you that you can give interpretations and, and explain enigmas, now, if you can read the writing and make known to me its interpretation, you shall be clothed with purple, which is a, a royal cover, a royal color, royal, you know, a, a cloth, and have a chain of gold around your neck, you know, symbolizing his authority, and shall be third ruler in the kingdom. And verse 17, then Daniel answered and said before the king, keep it. He said, hey, you know, just, just keep your stuff. He said, let your gifts be for yourself and give your rewards to another. He said, I don't care about that stuff. He said, keep it. Yet I will read the writing to the king and make known to him the interpretation. O king, the most high God gave Nebuchadnezzar your father. And so, oh, let me stop right there before I keep on reading. So here's Daniel. You know, Belshazzar offers him the whole world. Hey, Daniel, look, you do me this favor. Read this thing. I heard about you. I know you're this, that, the other. I, heard, I know your reputation. Do this thing for me. And here you go. I'll offer you the world. What do you say? Hey, man, you keep the world. I'm, I'm going to give you the interpretation. But keep that stuff. I love that. He couldn't be bought. Right? He was a man of integrity. You couldn't be bought. One thing that I'm reminding right now is, is, is something that, 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 that Paul wrote to, to Timothy. You know, I believe it's in 2 Timothy. First or 2 Timothy, one of the Timothys. But, but Paul is writing to, to his young pastor Timothy. You know, and, and, and he tells him, he, he's giving him all these warnings. He's exhorting him. He's encouraging him. And one of the things that he says is that, is that, a, is that a leader in the church, a pastor, a, 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 a man of God, cannot be a man who is covetous. Meaning, you know, a man who is greedy for money. Why? Because if someone is in the ministry and they're greedy for money, dude, they'll be bought. Hey, man, uh, look, this happened in the church, and uh, you know, but you know, there's no reason why we should let everyone know. Here's, let me slip you, a, you know, a couple Benjamins, and we'll just keep that between us, right? And it happens in the church. We've seen it happen time and time again. Now, if if men of God would, would heed the word of God, you know, the, all this would be avoided. And so we see that, that, that the Bible encourages, you know, not just men of God, you know, but, but Christians in general. Especially if you're in a position of authority, especially if you're in a position of leadership, especially if you're, if you're in a position, you know, where people are going to be looking to you. Because, hey man, don't be covetous. Don't be a lover of money. Why? Because it's going to compromise your integrity. And now we see that, that, that Daniel, he wasn't that guy, right? He could care less about these things. He could care less. But he, wanted, he just wanted to be home with, you know, he, he just wanted to be in heaven. He just wanted to be with the Lord. He didn't care about any of these things. You know, he's old. He's just—he's there still in captivity, right? He's waiting for God's promises to be fulfilled in his life. He could care less. And so Belshazzar offers him the world. He says, hey, you know what? Keep the world. Keep all that stuff. I'm still going to give you the interpretation. And so we see that he's going to give him, he's going to begin speaking to him now. And it goes on to say in verse 18, O king, the most high God gave Nebuchadnezzar your father a kingdom and majesty, glory, and honor. And because of the majesty that he gave him, all peoples, nations, and languages trembled and feared before him. Before him, Whomever he wished, he executed. Whomever he, he wished, he kept alive. Whomever he wished, he set up. And whomever he wished, 
he put down. So he's saying, man, look, Nebuchadnezzar was like the top king. You can't, you can't beat him, right? Verse 20, but when his heart was lifted up, when he became prideful, when his heart was lifted up and his spirit was hardened in pride, he was deposed from his kingly throne and they took his glory from him. Then he was driven from among the sons of men. His heart was made like the beast and his dwelling was with the, with the wild donkeys. They fed him with grass like oxen and his body was wet with the dew of heaven till he knew that the most high God rules in the kingdom of men and appoints, it, appoints over it whomever he chooses. He says, but you, his son, verse 22, but you, his son, Belshazzar, have not humbled your heart, although you knew all this. So Belshazzar knew those stories. He knew what happened with Nebuchadnezzar. Everybody in the, in the nation of Babylon knew this stuff, right? You, you remember in chapter 4 when, when Nebuchadnezzar when he had this whole experience for seven years. He was humbled, was driven out to the field like a wild animal. We're told that when his census you know, came back to him, he actually made a decree in Babylon. He said, look, everybody's going to worship the, the God of Daniel. He's the one true God. He's above all gods. You know, he, he raises up kings, puts them down. And so everybody in Babylon knew this. And so Daniel's addressing Belshazzar and he says, But you, his son Belshazzar, have not humbled your heart, even though you knew all this. In verse 23, And you have lifted yourself up against the Lord of heaven. They have brought the vessels of his house before you, and you and your lords, your wives, and your concubines have drunk wine from them. I'm reading, I'm reading that and I'm thinking, man, how did Daniel know that? He had just walked into the room, you know, but somehow he, he knew. He says, and you have praised the gods of silver and gold, bronze and iron, wood and stone, which do not see or hear, or no, and the God who holds your breath in His hand and owns all your ways, you have not glorified. Then the fingers of the hand were sent from Him, and this writing was written. Let's stop right there. So we see that again that, that Daniel's brought in now. You want know, to give the interpretation? Daniel's brought in. He's an old man, right? He could probably care less about what's going on. You know, even if judgment's about to come up on on, on Babylon on Belshazzar, he could care less. You know, he, you know he's not, he wasn't at the party. He wasn't with the. Even though he's the he's the chief magician, the chief of the of all the of all the guys there. You know, the chief of the, of the wise men. He wasn't with them. He could care less about what's going on there in the in the in the nation. We see that they look to a, to pagan practices for the wisdom. But Daniel looks to the Lord. Right? Belshazzar called all these guys, all the wise men, all the astrologers, all the soothsayers. They were looking to worldly wisdom. They had no answers. They called to Daniel. Daniel was looking to the Lord. He's about to give him the interpretation. Daniel looked to the Lord. Now we see that, that, that Daniel is about to give him the interpretation, but not without first scolding him. I love this about Daniel, because I can just imagine him. He's an old man. I don't know if you guys ever know, know an old man like that who just, you could just feel free to say whatever he wants, because he's an old man who's going to tell him otherwise. You know, he's going to, all right. You cut, you're at the grocery store, he cuts right in front of you. All right, you're not going to say no, he's an old man. Right, you're driving, he'll cut you off. Oh, that's an old guy, what am I going to do? Right, here's, here's Daniel, you know, that's Daniel. He doesn't care, he's a godly man, he's an old man, he's, he's going to say like it is. He doesn't care about, about, about the consequences. So he comes in. You know, he's about to give him the interpretation. But first he scolds him as much as he can. He says, you, you know, who are you? You're Belshazzar. You're nothing compared to Nebuchadnezzar. You know, he was prideful, but he humbled himself. You know, you're nothing, man. So he begins scolding him. He wasn't afraid to tell him the truth. You know, we can't be afraid to tell him the truth, right? To tell people the truth, right? There's that proverb that says, uh, the wounds of a friend are... are Pleasant, you know, but but the, a, a kiss from an enemy is deceitful, right? And so you could you could speak freely amongst friends, and so this this was Daniel. He wasn't afraid to just say the truth. You know, he was a man of God. And he knew what, what was about to happen in Babylon. I mean, keep in mind, you know, I mean, no doubt he had heard and read the words of the prophet Jeremiah, who prophesied concerning the fall of of, of Babylon. I think it's in Jeremiah. 50 and 51. You know, Jeremiah prophesied about the whole uh, nation of Babylon coming to an end. 
You know, and, and he understood because of Nebuchadnezzar's dream there in chapter 2. He knew, da- Daniel understood that the empire of Babylon was going to come to an end. You know, he saw it coming. He wasn't, he wasn't moved by it. He wasn't taken by surprise. Right? And so it goes on to say there in verse 25, he's going to give him the interpretation of this, of the writing on the wall. And it says, And this is an inscription that was written. Many, many tekel aparsons. Now, nobody knows what language that is. But that's what it said. Many, many tekel aparsons. Verse 26. This is the interpretation of each word. Many. God has numbered your kingdom and finished it. Tekel. You have been weighed in the balances and found wanting. Perez. Your kingdom has been divided and given to the Medes and the Persians. Then Belshazzar gave the command and they clothed Daniel with purple and put a chain, gold around his, uh, a chain of gold around his neck and made a proclamation concerning him that he should be the third ruler in the kingdom. So we see that again, they, they bring him in, you know, and, and he scolds them and then he reads them the, the writing on the wall. Again, uh, we don't know what language this is. It's believed that it was some kind of just, maybe it was just, it was only given only for Daniel so you can interpret it. You know, it wasn't any form of, 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 of Hebrew, it wasn't any form of, of Chaldee or, or Aramaic. You know, it was something that, that only Daniel could interpret. And so we see that it was, it was uh, four words, but two of them were the same. Many, many, tekel, a parson. And each one of these words tend to uh, is, uh, symbolize a, a phrase. Each one of these words was a phrase. And so the, the meaning of the writing on the wall was, hey, look, God has numbered your kingdom and it's done. You're done. You're, it's finished. You know, the, the days of your kingdom have come to an end. Taka, you have been weighed in the balances and found wanting. Now, what he's referring to, you know, is a ancient form of, you know, of, of financial transactions. So back in the day, they didn't have paper bills, they didn't have ATM cards, they didn't have Zelle, all this stuff, right? So when when they would, the, so their monetary exchange would be uh, and coins. They would they would uh, they would exchange silver coins, gold coins, you know, or, or bars of gold. And um, what they would do is that they would put it on this on this on this scale. Right, and they're in, you know, all right, uh, this amount of gold weighs this much, this amount of silver weighs this much, and then if, and so if somebody brought this amount and they will put it on the scale, and if it will come up short, I mean, they know that, that the scale that the either the, 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 the gold was, was hollow on the inside, or for whatever reason it wasn't pure, it didn't add up, they would say, Hey, man, you're found wanting, you know, you're found wanting, it's not what's it's not up to scale. You guys have all, I don't know, most of you guys are metalheads here. Uh, that that uh, the album from Metallica um, and Justice for All, right? There's a there's a there, there's Lady Justice in the on the cover, and she's blinded. And she has the, the scale. She's holding the scale, right? That's Lady Justice, and so she has the scale, and so that's what it symbolizes, you know, the 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 scale of justice, right? And so what what Daniel saying is, look, man, you've been weighed, and you came up short, man. That's it. Your days are numbered. You came up short. That's it. You're done. You're finished. He said, and then Perez, your kingdom has been divided and given to the Medes and the Persians. Notice that, that he mentions them by name and given to the Medes and the Persians. Now, interesting what, what Daniel says. You know, he uses specific words. It's not that your kingdom has been divided and it's going to be overtaken. It's not that your kingdom has been divided and someone's going to you know, conquer it. No, it's been given. You know, given by who? Given by God. What does that tell us? That God is in sovereign control of everything that's going on at this point. I love that because here we are, we're talking about two world governing empires. And you could say, hey man, God was in control of every single detail that went on right there. Yeah. So then why wouldn't God be in control of you know, every single detail in my life, right? Hey, I lost my job. All right, well, God knows. All right, man, I applied for the job. I didn't get it. Hey man, the Lord knows. Hey, I, I lost my house, this, that, the other, whatever. And you may think, man, well, I was taken by surprise, but God is never taken by surprise, right? If he could, if you could, you know, in his sovereignty, 
and a sovereignty just ordained all this stuff for, to, to happen in two world governing empires. I mean, what's my little life to him, right? Is my life, my, my, uh, the problems of my life too big for God to handle? Here he is, he's handling all this stuff going, going on right now. And yeah, sometimes we think my problems are too big for God. Yeah, I'll pray about the little stuff, you know, like, Lord, you know, bless my day. Or Lord, help him to not be sick. Or Lord, this. But I'm not going to bring all the big stuff to God because it's too big for him. Right? I mean, sometimes we, we think that way. Maybe subconsciously, but sometimes we do. I catch myself like that. Oh, man, I'm not going to pray about this because I got too busy with other people's prayers. Man, He's worried about world hunger or something crazy like that. Right? He's not going to care about me looking for a job or me looking for a new car or me looking for whatever or me, you know, whatever maybe you fill in the blank. But this is just an amazing picture of God's sovereignty and the lives of not just the whole world governing empire, you know, but individuals as well and us as well. And one thing I love about the Lord is that nothing takes him by surprise. Right? He's, that's the whole definition of sovereignty, that, that, that he's not surprised by anything. You know, something happens in your life and all of a sudden God's like, oh man, I see that coming. I got to figure out what's gonna, what I'm going to do with her. What am I going to do with him? No, he's not. I love that about the Lord. I love that. And then and it causes us to just trust in him. You know, causes us to just to, to put our whole faith, you know, whole, our whole lives in His hands. Because why? We don't know what's going to happen. I mean, we can't even predict a sneeze until you start feeling the tingly feeling right here. Then, all right, I'm going to sneeze. Right? Other than that, man, we don't know what's going to happen a minute from now, 10 seconds from now. We don't know if a car's going to drive through this door right now and just kill us all, except for me because I'm over here. Right? We don't know. But God knows. He knows everything. So that, that's more, that's more of, a, of a reason for me to just trust Him with my decisions. Trust Him with my life. Even though I may not understand what's going on. Right? And so it goes on to say, again, your kingdom has been divided, it's been given, given by God to the Medes and the Persians. Then Belshazzar gave the command, and they clothed Daniel with purple and put a chain of gold around his neck and made a proclamation concerning him that he should be the third ruler in the kingdom. You think, man, what's going on with this guy? It's like making someone the captain of the Titanic as it's going down, right? Many people believe that, 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 he's, that he did this out of pride. I was like, oh yeah, whatever, Danny. Okay, you know, my kingdom's being given over. Yeah, right. Have you looked at the walls around us? You know, have, have you seen how much food we have in the storage? Have you looked at the river lately? You know, just flowing through, through, through the city? Yeah, right. That's never going to happen. You're crazy. You're loopy. Yeah, here, make him king. Here's your chain. Your third in command. You know, he was, doing that, he was doing it out of pride. But notice that next verse. It says, that very night. Not a few years from then, not later on, not the next day. It says, that very night, Belshazzar, king of the Chaldeans, was slain. And Darius the Mede received the kingdom, being about 62 years old. God's word came to pass. It says, that very night. Now, interesting because world history, secondary history, actually tells us how this happened. You may think, well, I'm already How did this happen, right? Daniel didn't include all the details. And we're thinking, all right, well, Babylon was so great. You know, Babylon was so, you know, uh, uh, it was so awesome. Then, then, then how do they do it? How do they conquer it? It goes back to that verse, that previous verse is that God gave the kingdom over, you know, to the Medes and the Persians. It was God who did it, right? And so, the, again, the, the, the city of Babylon, it had all these walls around it. It had the Euphrates River running through it. You would think, all right, well, somebody could just swim through the river and get into the city, right? No. Well, what they did is that they, they, they made these, these, rod, these, these rods of iron, and, and they would drive them down, you know, as, as the water's coming in, where the water was coming in from. They made these, these rods, and they drove them all the way down, you know, like deep enough to where no one could swim through. You know, and so there, there were these, these, uh, these iron, these, these rod bars that, that, were, that, were, that were set up like this, you know, like a cage, so that as the water's flowing in, you know, no, no one else could go through. Now, secular history and world history tells us that, that as, as these guys were there, you know, partying up, having this big feast. Meanwhile, on the outside, um, 
Darius and the, and the Medes and the Persians, what they did is that they began to dig canals from the Euphrates River into an, uh, a nearby swamp. And so they were digging these canals and, and, and they were diverting the water from the Euphrates River into this swamp. And they, were, and they, did, it, they, they did it enough to, to where the, the Euphrates River got low enough where they could just swim right under it. And as they, as they swam right under it, usually they would, go, they would pass the iron bars and you would get to a gate. And for whatever reason, we know it was the Lord, but for whatever reason, those guards that were at the gate weren't there that night. And so these guys just walked into the city. You know, they didn't even have to fight for it. They just walked right in and they, they, they went up right, right up to Belshazzar and they killed him. That's amazing. I mean, it's an awesome story, but you know, it's amazing because it was the Lord who did all this. Right? And in and, and his eyes and Belshazzar's eyes, yeah, right, it's impossible. Man, look at me, man. I'm the greatest king of the greatest nation in the, in the world. World governing empire right here, man. Walls, you know, as high as you can see, you know, no one can get through. I got all my guards around them. If it, anybody's trying to get through, man, they'll spare him to death, whatever. Yeah, right, I'm partying it up. And all of a sudden, you know, God makes the impossible possible. You know, and, and God gives, God ordains all this. You know, he gives uh, Darius wisdom. He, again, he, he allows him to come into the city so that his prophecy could be fulfilled. Right, and so we see again that they overtook the city without a fight because it was God who gave it over to them. It wasn't in their own strength. It wasn't that whatever. It was, it was God. God's behind all this. That's the main point. You know, now, chapter 4 and chapter 5 of the book of Daniel, you know, actually tie them together. Because chapter 4 ends with Nebuchadnezzar stating, God's ways are justice, and those who walk in pride, he was able to put down. And chapter 5, you know, we, we see, we begin with, with Belshazzar being prideful, man. He was a prideful man who, who though he knew of Daniel, though he knew of, of what God had done through Daniel, for Daniel, and, and, for, and for King Nebuchadnezzar, you know, uh, we see that he was still prideful, you know, and he openly rejected, you know, God's sovereign rule over, over their lives. Right? He knew he knew all the stories. He knew about Daniel. He was there in his kingdom still. He had heard all the stories about the burning fire furnace. He heard the stories about the, 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 the image of the, the dream that Nebuchadnezzar had. He knew the story, you know, about, about all these other kingdoms that are going to conquer. You know, he knew the story of Nebuchadnezzar being humble for seven years. Then Nebuchadnezzar putting out that command. And he's in direct rebellion, you know, to God himself. And so, again, these, these chapters tie into it because it tells us about pride, right? And again, his last words, Nebuchadnezzar's last words in chapter 4 were, you know, God's ways are justice and those who walk in pride, he's able to put down. In chapter 5, we see a guy who was walking in pride and God put him down, quick, right? Now that ministers to us, that ministers to me. You might think, all right, what's well, an awesome history lesson, you know, but what does that mean in my life? You know, how can I apply that to my life? You know, that's, that happened a long time ago, good story, you should make a movie out of it, but what does that mean to me? Well, one, I think it's an awesome lesson for us in pride. For whatever reason, the Lord's drilling, you know, drilling that in us. And in me first, because, you know, I've mentioned it as a month period, that whenever you're preparing to teach a, a, a lesson, and God first ministers to you. You know, he's like God first speaks to me about this, and he's dealing with this in my life, the pride in my life, before I can tell you guys anything. I'm not just, I'm not the voice, but no, I have to go through it first. And as I'm reading through this, I'm like, oh, yeah, pride, that's a good one, Lord. And then he's like, hey, what about this? What about that? I'm like, oh, man. I just have to point that out, Lord. You know, and I know that one of the things that the Lord is, is trying to minister to us is just on, on that topic of pride, right? There's that verse that says that, that God resists, you know, the prideful. He resists. Now, man, that, that's heavy, right? We could read right through that and think nothing of it. But to think that God himself is opposing you, God, is, God himself is resisting you, you're not going to win. 
You know, if you come in your pride against God, you come in your, in your pride, you know, and, and take that approach to the world, to your plans, to your family, to whatever it may be, you know, your career in pride, God's, God Himself is going to oppose you. God Himself is going to resist you. Man, that's not one opponent I want to have. I want to have God on my side. So what do you do? Does God resist the proud, but He gives grace to the humble? And being humble just is just recognizing, man, God, you're in control. You can do whatever you want with my life, right? One day I'm right here at work, doing good, making good money. The next day, man, they lay me off. All right. Lord, you're in control. I forgot. But I remember now. You're in control. Right? And so that's one lesson for us. Another lesson is just God's sovereignty in our lives. Again, how I mentioned earlier, if God could be in control of these two world-governing empires, you know, how much more, you know, uh, how much more aware is he now? Is how, much, how much more aware is he of, of your situation, you know, in your life, whatever you're going through? It's not too little for God. Now, if you could take the time to deal with all these guys, you know, then, then he could take the time to deal with us. Right? And one thing I love about this whole story, you know, between these two kings is Nebuchadnezzar. I mean, man, we read about everything that he did there in the beginning, right? In 2 Kings 25, how he went to Judah, how he, you know, uh, pillaged the city three times, took captives. You know, history tells us that, that we would take the captives, that he would put a nose ring on them. He would uh, chain all these guys together by their nose ring and drag them, you know, for thousands of miles until they got to Babylon. Right, he, he, he took the king and he slaughtered his kids right in front of his eyes and poked his eyes out. This guy was evil. He was wicked. But because he turned his heart to the Lord, man, God saved him. Right? Because he turned to repentance, he recognized that God, you're Lord, not me. God saved him. And on, the, on the other hand, we have this guy you know, who didn't really do much. But yet, you know, he rejected God and he died in his sins. I think that's just an awesome picture of God's grace you know, on the world and on us as well. You know, that doesn't matter what you've done. It doesn't matter, you know, you know, what you did in the past, who you were in the past. The very moment that you just decide, you know what, God? I give up. You got my life. Everything I did, whatever, Lord, I give it to you. That very moment, you know, God's grace is able to cover everything you've ever done. You know, the Bible says that where, where sin abounds, you know, grace overabounds. I always like to use this illustration, you know, where it says, you know, where sin, sin abounds. Sin abounds is like having this cup full to the, to the rim. That's sin abounding. And the Bible says that where sin abounds, grace overabounds. Imagine taking this cup that's abounding with sin all the way to the top, and you, and you dip this in the middle of the Atlantic Ocean. And the Atlantic Ocean is God's grace overabounding. And that's, God, that's God's grace in our life. You know, where sin abounds, grace overabounds. Amen? Amen. We'll end on that note. Father God, thank you so much for your word. Lord, I just